And if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you might be wondering, okay, what is this? What is family? Although it's a good topic to talk about, it's a biblical idea. What does it have to do with where we've been of the last couple of weeks in this series, Words from the Cross? And I would argue it fits right in with this series because the idea of family is something that Jesus himself talks about mere moments before he dies. So we've been in this series, Words from the Cross, for uh, a number of weeks now. This is week five of this series, and I encourage you, if you've missed any one of the previous messages, to go back to our website, go to our YouTube channel, and, and refresh yourself or, or watch those messages again, because we've just spent a couple of weeks talking about what Jesus has to say just before he dies. Because not only were the words from the cross profoundly important for the individuals that were there then, but as we've studied and as we've learned, they're actually profoundly powerful for you and I still today. We're going to look at another one of those statements this morning in John 19. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 19. As you're turning there, let me set the stage, maybe remind you of what's going on. In John 19, Jesus has been betrayed, he's been belittled, he's been beaten, he's been bloodied, and he finds himself crucified between two criminals. These two criminals are not the only people that are there, though. John actually tells us there are other people there. He, he lists two groups specifically, one of which is the soldiers that were around the cross at this time. But then he also talks about a group of Jesus' friends and family who are very close by as well. John is in that group, but so is Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So around the foot of the cross, you see these people, and we can assume there are others, but these two are mentioned specifically, these two groups. But it is with this backdrop we read John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. John writes this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And that hour the disciple took her into his home. Now, what is Jesus saying? Why is he saying it? And how, does these, how do these words impact you and me today? So, what is Jesus saying? Well, very clearly, Jesus says to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And to the beloved disciple, which is John referencing himself, Here is your mother. This is what he is saying. It's very clear. However, when you read scripture or you study scripture, to get the most out of it, it's very important to ask a couple of questions. To ask questions like, uh, what is the historical, or what is the literary context of a particular passage? Like, what is going on in the text itself? We, we just talked about this. He's, he's on the cross. He's been crucified. There are people around him. This is mere moments before he dies. Uh, another question to consider uh, is that of, you know, what is being said? Who's saying what and what is being said? Again, Jesus is the one speaking, addressing his mother, telling her that she is to be the mother of John and telling John that now Mary is to be his mother. So 
Okay, we've got those two down. But there's another question that's also very, very important, and admittedly can be a little difficult to answer. What is the cultural context? Right, Jesus was raised in a particular culture that had a particular pattern of life and a way of doing things, all wrapped up in a particular language that if we're not careful, we can read texts like this and completely misunderstand because we read into something that's actually not there. We have an example of this in this text this morning, and I, I, hope, it, I hope it stood out to you. When we, we read these words on a page or these words on a screen in verse 26, that Jesus, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, 100% God, 100% man, turns to his mother at the cross and calls her woman, that just don't sit right. It's a, it's a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, I don't, Jesus, I don't think you can say that, right? I mean, it's just, when we read it, just as it reads, it, it's just, Jesus, I don't think you, it's a little rude, isn't it? Like, it's a little inconsiderate. Is this what Jesus is saying? I mean, I, I don't, th- there isn't a woman that I would ever refer to or talk to and say woman the least of which being my mom that's never gonna like no way but this is what Jesus does so so is this what he's saying is he being inconsiderate or insensitive just moments before he dies to his own mother no no he's not again the, the cultural context is very important because in the Greek This word woman is not a derogatory term. It's not a disrespectful term. It is a term of highly, it is a term of endearment and love. It's a highly affectionate and respectful term, according to Marvin Vincent's word studies of the New Testament. So he's not being rude or inconsiderate or unloving to his mother. He's actually being very respectful and very kind. He actually refers to Mary the same way in John 2 with the wedding in Cana. Woman. We read it and go, ah, I, don't, I don't know, but that, that's not how it's supposed to be read. But it is a term of respect and love and endearment. You could argue that he doesn't address Mary as Mary because there are multiple Marys present. Doesn't want to confuse anybody. But then too, you could also argue that he doesn't address her as mother, because there's a very violent crowd around them, and they have done very violent things towards Jesus. And it's conjecture, but it is quite possible that if he addresses his mother as mother, that that violent crowd could then turn against her. So he stops, and out of love and respect and care, says, woman, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother. But why? Why does Jesus say this? Of all the things that could be said, why is this even on his radar? Like, why does it even need to be said? I I think there are two reasons here why Jesus says what he says. One is immediate to the that moment and the culture in which Jesus was raised, and the other is far more eternal, and it's actually where you and I come into the picture. We'll talk about that in a minute. So why? Why does Jesus say this? Why does he make this gesture 
to Mary and to John? Well, according to Jewish historians, most scholars believe that at this moment, Joseph, Mary's husband, had died. And according to Jewish culture, it would have fallen that the responsibility of the care of the mother, who would now be a widow, would have fallen on the eldest son, which would have been Jesus. But Jesus is now incapable of following through on this. He's on the cross. So someone has to care for Mary. And, and you would believe, or, or maybe you're thinking, okay, well, well why isn't it just one of Jesus' brothers? Well, I, again, I think there are two reasons why this isn't the case. Number one, we have no record of the other family members of Jesus being there at the cross for him to give this charge to. But then two, if, you, if you've read through the Gospels, you will read passages where the family of Jesus, specifically his siblings, like they weren't really on board with him early on. They didn't believe that he was the Christ until after the resurrection. So if, he's called, if he is called to trust someone with the care of his own mother, it's going to be someone that he trusts. Enter John, the beloved disciple. For all intents and purposes, John is Jesus' best friend, his closest friend. And with that, you're like, well, yeah, of course. Well, that makes sense that I'm going to make sure that my mother is cared for, and I'm going to make sure that one of my best friends is cared for from my mother in this moment. Jesus has poured his life into John. Not only was John one of the 12 disciples, but he was in an inner group of disciples with Peter and James that got to experience things like the Mount of Transfiguration. There is a very unique relationship that Jesus has with John, so where he can trust John to actually follow through on what he's asking of him. And if we stop for a second, isn't this like a sermon within a sermon? That Jesus, on the cross, beaten, bloodied, in his moment of greatest agony and suffering and physical pain, is more concerned with the well-being of others than of himself. That moments before he dies, what is on his mind is not the, the call of a legion of angels to remove him from the cross and eliminate these wicked soldiers, but rather, I want to make sure my mom's taken care of. And I know that she's going to watch after my best friend. And then you see another sermon within a sermon, because at the end of this text, John does exactly what he's supposed to do. At this moment, he takes Mary with her. It's immediate obedience. He does not wait. It is not delayed. He does not, like, well, how's this going to work out, or how am I going to do this, or what are people going to think? Jesus gives a command, and John obeys, which should lead us to ask a very similar question. When Jesus calls us to do something, do we immediately respond? Or do we have delayed obedience? Okay, Jesus, I'll I'll do this, whatever this may be, but just let me get some things in order first. Let me get some things situated. Let me talk to these people. Let Let me pray about it and never pray about it. John's example here is one for you and me, that as soon as Jesus makes a command, John says, all right, I'm on it, you got it. There is no delayed obedience. 
there is immediate obedience. But then this is where you and I step into the picture. Again, Jesus says, woman, here is your son. John, here is your mother. And in, in a very powerful way, this text actually does refer or, or address you and me. How did these words impact you and I where we are? Well, again, just stop for a minute. Think about what Jesus is doing. He's telling Mary, who is not the mother of John, to serve in a role that is the mother of John. And he tells John, who is of no relation to them at all, that you are to be the son of this woman. He is creating a family where there once was no family. It is a powerful picture of the family of God. Family is a big deal in Scripture. We trace the family of Adam and Eve all the way up to Noah and his sons, and then from Noah and his sons we go to Genesis 12, which is Abram's call, and Abram becomes uh, Abraham, and then he has his sons, and we follow this family of Abraham throughout the rest of the Old Testament all the way up to the days of Jesus. Family is an incredibly important thing in the eyes of God. We have whole chapters in our Bibles dedicated to family trees. We see it in Genesis 5. We see it in other places towards the end of Genesis as well. We see it in Matthew 1 and Luke 4, all dedicated to, hey, how this family has come to be. It's incredibly, incredibly important. But it's here where there are a group of people that I, I don't think mean poorly, or like I don't, I don't think they're trying to, to misunderstand something, but they do misunderstand something. There is some confusion, because there are those that will argue, hey, I get it, Pastor, family of God, amen. We are all a part of God's family. We are all members of God's great big family. And that sounds really, really nice. And I hope that we all want everyone that we know to be a member of God's family. But the truth of the matter is that everyone is not a part of God's family. We are not all God's children. Yes, we are all God's creation. But we are not all God's children. Biblically speaking, none of us are even worthy of becoming a member of God's family. Like, there's something within us that keeps us from being a part of God's family. We are born sinful, wicked, depraved, far from God. We are unrighteous. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that we are children of wrath and enemies of God. There is something within us that keeps us from being a part of God's family. And listen, it's within us. This issue of sin, this problem of 
unrighteousness is not merely chalked up to the activity of our lives. It's just what I say or what I do or what I watch or where I go. No, that's not it at all. It's actually much, much deeper than that. That this sin problem that we all have goes much deeper than just our actions and external activity. It is an internal problem. It's, it's where we question our, our motivations and our intentions behind those things. You see, we are far more sinful than we even realize. I'll give you a personal example of this. So when I was younger, I knew very clearly that I was not perfect. That was quite evident. But I thought, I'm just being honest, I mean, there's only like maybe two or three things that I struggle with. That's it. And if I ever developed the will or strength or determination to just overcome those things, those two or three little things, not big things, they were always little things in my eyes, just little things. I knew I wasn't going to be perfect, but man, I'd have been close. At least that's what I thought. And then I got older. And I began to see tendencies and patterns and behaviors that I never thought I would struggle with. That I ever thought I would have to address or lay before the Lord. That that list of two or three things got significantly larger. For example, I have been told my entire life, like as far back as I can remember, by like adults, not, not like grown people would tell me, Ryan, you are just the most patient person I have ever met in my life. You, you are so incredibly patient. I never see you mad. I never see you frustrated. I never see you upset with anybody. Like, I don't know how you do it. You are so patient. And I'll be honest, yeah, I was. I'm not bragging about that. I'm not boasting about that. I don't really know why the Lord wired me that way, but like I just am. I just, by nature, my family is at this church. You can ask them. Like for the most part, I am a fairly patient individual. So if you'd have told me 15 years ago, you're going to struggle with patience and that's going to lead to a struggle with anger, I'd have gone, get out of here. No, I'm not. I mean, there might be other things, but not this. I'm not going to struggle with that. I'm not going to angry? No, you got the wrong guy. Not me. And this is where I like to consider, I don't know what your opinion is on this, that the Lord has a sense of humor. Because about this time, God gives me some things. Kids. All right? And they're here, and I love them to death. Those boys are unbelievable. They are incredibly awesome. And if I talk too much about them right now, I will cry. Like, I love those boys like nobody's business. But it just so happens, whether they know they're doing it now or not, I like to think they don't know. There will come a day when they do know, and they, they'll play this card. I don't know that they know now. 
but they will say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong set of circumstances at, in the wrong tone of voice to where daddy's patience is not as thick as it used to be. And I remember going, like I, I remember very specifically an incident, I'm not getting into detail about it, but I remember a very specific incident where I overreacted. And I'm talking, it was Eli, he's our oldest, it was, I mean he was maybe 10 months old. He was acting like a baby, if you believe that. Okay, like he wasn't, he wasn't trying to ruin my day, he just had a, he's a baby. Like what's he gonna do? And I remember, like, I just, I like, yeah, I like raised my voice at him, and I j immediately, it was like, oh, where'd that come from? Never done that before a day in my life. Because the sin problem is not just surface level stuff. It's not just behaviors that we can modify, or we can change, or we can kind of like just do better. It's a lot deeper. And it's things that if you're aware, you'll go, golly, I am far more sinful than I think I am. We have a great sin problem. But praise God, we have a greater Savior. Amen? This is what we see here, that, that Jesus is this Savior. If we were to stop here with just the reality of sin and that sin keeps us from being a part of the family of God, then we would be left with the question, okay, well then how can anyone be a part of God's family? If sin keeps us from God, we all have a sin problem, then what happens? How can you and I, others that we know, be welcomed into the family of God? And it happens at the same place it happened for John and Mary, at the foot of the cross. Jesus takes something that wasn't and makes it something that is. He takes a sinner, moves them into a, makes them become a saint. He takes us from death to life, from darkness to light, from enemy to friend, from broken to whole, from unrighteous to righteous, from fallen short to co-heirs with Christ, from lost to found, from spiritual orphan to child of God. You can only become a member of God's family by repenting of your sins and trusting in the finished work of Jesus. It all happens here, at the foot of the cross. And then, when you become a member of God's family, your identity changes. Like, it changes completely. It redefines who you are. You are no longer, as a child of God, you are no longer your sin. You are his son. And you are no longer your depravity. You are his daughter. He is not just your creator. He is your heavenly Father, there are elements of your salvation and my salvation that are deeply personal. But there are also elements that are deeply communal. Because we're not saved into just our own little space, our own little box. We are saved into the family 
of God. And being a child of God should have a profound impact on how we live our lives. We see this play out in multiple ways, but we're going to highlight two with our time together this morning. Number one, being a member of God's family means that we are not alone. You are not alone. The world around us has become a hotbed of individualism and isolation. We have our own little cubicles at work. You probably have recognized this, but most people are far less likely to open the doors of their home as they were once were, like just a couple of years ago. The, The devices in our pockets don't help us in this regard at all. It is a hotbed of individualism and isolation, and it has caused a lot of problems. In a study from the official journal, The Science of Medicine and Natural Sciences in Italy, they write this. Loneliness is a prevalent and global problem for adult populations, and a number of different studies have linked it to multiple chronic conditions, including heart disease, lung disease, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, stroke, and metabolic disorders such as obesity and metabolic disease. It is also a major predictor of psychological problems such as depression, stress, and anxiety. That study was from 2018, and I don't think things have gotten better. This is the world that we live in. We have this growing sense of just like being alone or doing it on my own or I've got this. Those those are the three most dangerous words I think on the planet. I've got this. You You don't have to. As a child of God, you are not alone. You are a member of God's family. You are not alone. Because first and foremost, we've been given the spirit of God to dwell within us. He teaches us. He comforts us. He convicts us. He helps us grow. He guides us. You are not alone as a member of God's family because the Spirit of the living God dwells within you. But you are also not alone because you have the saints of God with you. Like, His people were saved into a family of other people who once were enemies of God, children of wrath, far from Him, but now because because of Jesus have been brought into the family. Some of us who grew up in church are familiar with this language. We'll, we'll call somebody brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. We use this familiar language to remind us that when we gather, when we group, it's not just getting together with a bunch of other individuals. It's like a family reunion every week. Is the family perfect? No. But we're called to it. We are called to one another. We are called to be a part of God's family. We are not alone. But also, being a member of God's family means that we have responsibilities. The home that you grew up in, you had responsibilities. You had to take trash out, you had to make your bed, you had to brush your teeth, you had to do your homework. As you've gotten older, you still have responsibilities. They just change, right? You've got to pay the bills. You're the one scheduling the appointments now. There's got to be food on the table. We have responsibilities in the family of God 
as well. We see this in a number of different places, but some of the things, some of the places we see this most clearly is in the 59 one another commandments in the New Testament. These one another commands instruct members of God's family on how to interact with not just other members of God's family, but with the world around us. A couple of examples are that we are to be at peace with one another. We are to love one another. We are to accept one another. We are to serve one another. We are to be patient with one another. Forgive one another and encourage one another. These commands are to be practiced in our daily lives, but they are also to be practiced in the family of faith, in the local gathering of the church. When we gather, when we group, this kind of behavior should mark the child of God because we are a part of God's family. It is here at the foot of the cross where Jesus illustrates this incredible truth, building the family of God in a brand new way. And there are those of us here this morning who are believers, who are called to live this out, to not just act like a child of God here, but act like a child of God wherever you go. Because God in his sovereignty has placed you in those spaces, in that neighborhood, with your kids going to that school, on that PTA board, going to that grocery store, to that gym. These are not accidents. These are God strategically placing his children to make an impact on the world around us. We are also called as children of God to be ambassadors that welcome in new brothers and sisters. We are to share the good news of the gospel that salvation has been made available and that whosoever would believe in Jesus Christ would be welcomed into the family of God. And if you are here this morning and that you have never repented of your sins and placed your trust in him, our prayer, my prayer, is that today would be the day of salvation. It is God's desire that you know him through a personal relationship with Jesus and that you too would become a son or daughter of the one true heavenly Father, a good and gracious God.